Over the past four, three weeks, we've looked at hope, we've looked at peace, and we've looked at joy, and we've looked at how Christ's birth helps us better understand these words that are so key and foundational to our faith. And we've looked at it to help us better understand from Genesis to Revelation the entire arc of the story of the Bible, not just around what happened at Christ's birth, but hope, joy, peace, and now tonight, love are key terms and phrases that are paramount to our right understanding of the entire story of the scriptures. And as we better understand the story of the scriptures, we better understand what God is seeking to do through our lives today. Because even though the scriptures are closed, nobody's writing books that are getting added into the Bible, we live in the age of the church. And so we need to understand in our life as the church is best informed by understanding the entire sweep of the story of the scriptures. Now, hope, peace, love, and joy are used with great frequency around Christmas, both in and outside the church. These four words show up on cards. You hear them in songs. You see them on T-shirts. They're the, the makeup of every Hallmark or Lifetime Christmas movie. But as we gather, our aim with these is not to figure out how to understand the world's interpretation of these words. Our aim is to see and understand how God has given us a more full understanding of these words in the birth of Christ. And so tonight we're going to set our hearts and our minds on love. And I think you would agree that there are no shortage of people today both inside and outside of the Christian faith, who would affirm on a passing glance that God is love. But what does it mean for God to be love, and how does the birth of Christ help us to see the love of God more fully? And that's the journey we're going to go on this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful that in your love you gave us your scriptures. We don't have to fumble around in the dark trying to understand who you are. You've disclosed yourself to us in human language. And it's such grace for us. It's a loving grace that we would be able to read words that would help our feeble, finite minds begin to understand the scope and the depth and the beauty and the majesty of who you are, Father. And so would we just be people who love you because we understand you more through your word? Would your word bring us to deeper love and satisfaction and enjoyment of you? Would we not love your word above you, but would we allow your word to help mature our love for you? Father, you are so great and so glorious. And we owe the ability to pray to you, to sing to you, to offer our lives in service to you. We owe it all to Christ coming and living and dying in our place and rising again, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that we could know new life. Will we be good stewards of the life that you've given us? In Christ's name, amen. Glenn Schaefer said, the theme of the entire Bible is the self-revelation of the God of love. The love theme of the Bible can only be defined by the nature of God. God does not merely love, he is love. Everything that God does flows from his love. This is a key way to begin to understand Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation 
When we read that God created the heavens and the earth, then in Genesis 1 and 2, we see and understand that creation itself was an expression of the love that God had always enjoyed within the community of the Trinity. So it is that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and were meant to live lives characterized by love of God, love of others, and care for his creation. But love cannot exist where there is no choice to embrace or reject the love that is offered. And so when you read in Genesis 1 and 2 of God speaking the world into existence and creating Adam and Eve and putting them in the garden, you see the ideal way God anticipated or desired for the world to go, which was men and women living on the earth, subduing the earth, working the earth, managing creation, all while loving each other and all while living in close communion and loving fellowship with him. And so love is what caused everything to be created in the first place because the love of God, the the divine love that's always existed in the Trinity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit is an outward-focused, outward-looking love. And so it is that God, out of the overflow of his love, speaks the world into existence and creates man and woman and places them in the garden. But God did not create robots. God did not create those who would love him because there was no choice to not love him. And so when you read in those first few chapters of Genesis, we read in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the following. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the only rule given in Genesis 1 and 2 that carried with it a you shall not. I have a three-year-old. It feels like the only rules we give out in our house are you shall not, or you cannot, or you better not. When creation was first happening, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, the only you shall not was that you can't eat of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was a call and a test and an opportunity for Adam and Eve to trust that by enjoying everything else other than this one tree, they would experience the fullness of God's love and care for them. If they disobeyed then, they wouldn't just be breaking a rule, which is how we so often think of sin. They would be breaking the Father's heart by rejecting his love. And we all know what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, take the fruit and they eat. And sin entered the world not because a rule was broken. Sin entered the world because Adam and Eve rejected God's love and when they rejected God's love in the garden and sin entered the world all of human life was reordered and reoriented around a primary love for one's self gone was the love that would look outward and be outward focused the way that God's love was and when Adam and Eve reject God's love in the garden and they break the only rule that they have which is don't eat from this tree They don't just merely break the rule. They reject the trust and the love that God offered them. Of all that they could have done, they just had to trust 
that if they didn't eat from this one tree, they would experience no less of the goodness and the love and the favor of the God who had created them in his image in their life. But they reject God's love and sin entered the world. And so we find it stunning if you aren't numb to Genesis 1 through 3, which most of us can kind of paraphrase through those first three chapters really well. But if you, if you aren't numb to what you're reading, if you go back and read it, and kind of suspend your own understanding of the text for a moment, and you were to read through it, you would be absolutely stunned at God's response when sin enters the world and his love is rejected. Again, Glennie Schaefer helps us understand this. We, He says, we are not prepared then when God looks for Adam after his sin, calling out, where are you? God seeks Adam not to put him to death, but to reestablish a relationship with him. God the lover will not allow sin to stand between him and his creature. He personally bridges the gap. And from Genesis 3 on, it is one story after another of the sin of man and the disobedience of men being bridged, the gap being bridged, and God taking it on himself to keep a relationship with his people viable. When we begin to understand love as the primary motivation for creation, and when we understand that sin, more than just rule-breaking, is a rejection of God's love and care for us, and when we understand that love compelled God to seek man's redemption, not his annihilation, then we begin to see the Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 on in a different light. But if you think about God first as a rule giver, which if we're honest, that's just where most of our understanding of God comes. We pick up the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We really begin to understand him when he gives out the rules after the Exodus. Most of us, our primary, our first thought of God is as a rule giver, as a judge, as one who arbitrates, was my law broken, was my law not broken. But if we're going to understand the fullness of the scope of the story of Scripture, we're going to understand the significance of Christ's birth, then we have to understand that before God was ever a rule giver, he was a father who loved his son. He was a father who loved the Spirit. There was love present in the Trinity, and love overflowed in to creation. And we have to understand that if we're going to read all of Scripture correctly. We don't have to reverse engineer love into God's character. We don't have to reverse engineer God's love from the New Testament to the Old. We pick up on God's love in Genesis 1-1, and it carries the entire arc of Scripture to the close of Revelation. All of the Old Testament then becomes a means by which we see the divine nature of the love of God as he pursues those who regularly spurn, mock, and belittle him by their words, actions, and worship. And so it is that hope, joy, and peace that mark the pages of the Old Testament and that we've looked at in the previous weeks of Advent are all undergirded and supported by the love God has chosen to set on his people. After all, the recipients of divine love post-Genesis 3.15 are never chosen because of their merit, as Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 makes crystal clear. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, 
For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So it was that God chose Israel not because of their strength, not because of their might, not because there was something in them that warranted God loving them, The nation of Israel knew God's love because he chose to set his love on them. And that is true for each of us in here today. The love of God is not something we have ever earned, nor we ever have a hope of earning it. We experience and we enjoy the love of God because he has chosen in Christ to set his love on us. And if you just take just a few moments, maybe later today or sometime between now and Christmas morning, and you were to recount all the opportunities that you've given God to reject you and not love you, and you've seen all the ways that he's remained committed and faithful and steadfast in his love for you, you would agree and you would affirm this truth, that there is really nothing in you that would warrant God setting his love on you outside of his free grace in saying, I am going to love you. Seeing the love of our Father on display in the Old Testament also means that we begin to see the beauty of the law, even though it was unable to save us. I mean, we give the law a really bad rap this side of the cross. But there's a certain beauty to the law when you begin to understand how the love of God influences our understanding of all of the Old Testament. What we see when we see the law in its beauty and what we see when we see the sacrificial rituals that were part of temple worship, we see God in love stooping down and showing his people how they are to live in loving relation to him. Also, the law shows us that we do not get to set the terms of what faithful love of God looks like. Rather, God does as our creator, and he chose to do this by giving the law. So the law is beautiful because the law is God in condescending grace saying, this is the bare minimum. If you really read the law and and understand it, and you can get through some of the cultural differences. God is saying, this is the bare minimum requirements for living in right relationship with me. These are the bare minimum requirements to understand what it is to live in relation to a holy and righteous and just and loving God. And so the law is beautiful, even though it can't save, because the law helps us see the grandeur and the beauty and the majesty of the God who is going to come redeem us by his own Son. The law and all of its beauty gives us this glimpse into the holiness and righteousness of the God in whose image we were created. And it also works to stir in us a longing for God's love to be displayed relationally, not transactionally, which is the primary function of the law, a transaction-based relationship. The transactional nature of the law always has and always will leave the hearts of those trying to follow it untouched. 
And all you have to do is read the Old Testament from the giving of the law in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy on through the end of Malachi. If you want to see how the law is unable to touch the hearts, it's able to poke the hard heart and make it aware of its need for a Savior, but the law in its transactional nature is unable to touch and affect the hearts of humans. And so it is that as the nation of Israel is led out of Egypt in the Exodus and the nation of Israel is given the law and the ordinances for right living and worship and the tabernacle serves as the physical representation of the presence of God with them, the nation of Israel takes the promised land and quickly moves into the chaos of the judges. Samuel arises as the last judge and ushers in the monarchy through Saul. And after Saul, David is established as the one who will take the throne of Israel. And from his line will come one who will rule forever. However, with all of this history and the future promises of God ringing in their ears, they cannot stop themselves, the people of God, they cannot stop themselves from being overtaken by the curses of God as it relates to the covenant. Israel then splits into two nations, Israel and Judah, and spirals down into ever-deepening rebellion. Eventually, they find themselves led in exile from the land of promise. And it is now at this lowest point in their history that God raises up the prophets to speak of a loving God, pursuing and preserving those who will love him with their whole hearts. And it is the prophets who sound the call of one coming, a Messiah who will finally be able to address the heart issue that the law could only exacerbate by constantly pointing to the inability of God's people to love him and others rightly. That is a very brief covering of all of the Old Testament from Exodus on. At every point along the way, there were ample opportunities for God to give up on loving these people. If it were left up to me and you, we would have left these people a long time ago. We all have a certain limit in our capacity and our ability to love, to continue to withstand being abused and being mocked and being belittled. We eventually hit a breaking point where we say enough and we walk away. And praise God, that is not how divine love works. One of the prophets God raises up is Ezekiel. Ezekiel serves those in exile who are waiting to return to the land of Judah. Ezekiel is honest about the reality of man's condition. He unequivocally points to the exile as punishment for the disobedience and hard-heartedness of God's people. Yet in this book, we see God through Ezekiel communicating his love for his people and his commitment to being the one who remedies the disordered love that has characterized the life of men and women since the fall. If you're going to read the Old Testament well to get you to the New Testament, to understand the significance of Christ being born if you're going to understand the significance of Christ for our life today, much like the prophets of the Old Testament, you have to be willing to look at the chaos and the calamity of sin in the world. And you've got to be willing to call it what it is, both in your own life and in the society and the neighborhoods and the cities and the towns and the countries and the world where you live. 
So much of the prophet's messages are lost on us for two reasons. One is the cultural divide. I mean, it's hard to understand what they mean when they talk about the cows of Bashan. I don't know what that means. Like, it's hard to understand exactly what they're after. Or the uh, uh, cedars of Lebanon. I don't know what that means either. Maybe I'll understand it someday. But I think the other reason we have a hard time grasping the message of the prophets is because we have a hard time admitting that things are actually as bad as they are. The brightness of the hope offered in the prophets is only as bright as you're willing to descend into the darkness and the depravity of human hearts. And so it is that the gospel, both in our life and in the lives of others, it gains its radiance and it gains its beauty as we're willing to honestly assess just how bad things are so that it would increase our worship of the one who is coming to make all things right. And that's what the prophets did over and over and over again, both before exile, during exile, and then in the restoration of the temple in Judah. Over and over and over again, the joy of God's people in the Old Testament is tied to understanding God's love for them as they understand just how far away they've ran from his love. So Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel eleven seventeen through 21. Therefore you say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. In Ezekiel 11, God through Ezekiel Confirms his love for his people. Confirms that he's going to be the one who takes out their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. It is only the divine love of God that can reach into the chest of men and women and turn a heart of stone that has been calcified by sin being repeated over and over and over again. It's only the divine loving touch of God that can reach in and take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that begins to love God more than sin and begins to seek to obey rather than disobey the God who has rescued his people but God's also very clear that if there are those whose hearts continue to go after detestable things and continues to go after abominations they will have their own deeds brought on their own heads this is divine love that God is capable and able of reaching in and touching the hardest of hearts and taking it out and putting in a heart of flesh But there are those who will resist, who will walk away, who will never know the experience of the divine hand of love reaching into their life and changing their hearts, and they will pay the penalty for their sins. God in Ezekiel 11 says there are two ways that every person that has ever been born or ever will be born, there are two ways their life will go. Either I will touch their heart and give them a heart of flesh, in place of a heart of stone, or they will continue to run after their sins and their abominations, and their deeds are going to come back on their own head. 
when we read Ezekiel 11 and we begin to anticipate Christ's birth, we see that divine love moves to do for God's image bearers what they are incapable of doing for themselves. The love of God that carried history forward to this point will be the same love that will bear the full cost of redemption. So it is when we read in Luke 2, after the birth, which everyone knows that part of the story, but we get to the point where Mary and Joseph take Jesus into the temple. There's a blind man there named Simeon who takes baby Jesus from Mary and begins to prophesy over him. And this is what Simeon tells Mary, starting in Luke 2.34, And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. When Simeon tells Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, we see and hear in part what will be the cost of redemptive love in action. So it is that we too, this side of the cross, when we look back and we see the Son of God crucified, hanging, condemned in our place, we feel in part the thrust of the sword through our own soul as we consider that it is our sin that he willingly bore in love. Make no mistake then, this sets an example for us as God's people. That love that imitates and follows the lead of its Redeemer will be costly. May we be those who love God and others with intentional, costly love that can only come from us because we have received a new heart through Christ our Lord. When Jesus was born in the stable and laid in the manger, when the shepherds came, when the wise men came, when Jesus was taken to the temple, when Jesus lived his entire adolescent and early adult life, learning from his father Joseph how to be a carpenter, when Jesus went out at 30 and began three years of public ministry, at every step along the way, Jesus knew that in order for our hearts to be changed, his would have to stop beating. He knew that the only hope for those who were born under the curse of our first parents, Adam and Eve, was for him to become the curse on our behalf. At every point along the way, he knew that he was moving the divine narrative of love forward. And so when we celebrate Christmas, it is not a warm fuzzy love that we celebrate. It is a love that confronts the cold, hard facts of reality. And then because it is love that is of divine origin, it can overcome even the hardest of hearts and even the worst of circumstances and situations. And God calls us who have experienced this love to then go out and love others also. So maybe later tonight or tomorrow is when your Christmas really starts to move forward. Maybe you're not going to have anything to do tomorrow besides sit around and count down the hours until, until Christmas morning. But here's what I would almost guarantee. Regardless of 
where you are, regardless of who's going to come to your house or whose home you're going to go to, I would guarantee over the next few days, you're going to have a chance to demonstrate in person through your words and through your actions what divine, costly love, the love that we celebrate on Christmas, looks like being lived out in your own life. My prayer is that God would give you the strength and the wisdom and the courage to love others well. Let's pray.